Okay, so today I'm thinking out loud with Chris Rinaldi, who I'll let introduce herself in a moment, but I just want to say that um, Chris and I have known each other for almost the entire time that I've lived in Asheville, and she is my Reiki teacher, and um, clearly just a person in whose orbit I am meant to um, I am meant to be. We seem to be always oscillating around each other and running into each other. And now we have the the benefit of, I get to share office space with her um, too. So uh, she's there today and I'm in my house and we're talking about Reiki amongst other things. But Chris, how are you introducing yourself today? Does it depend on who you talk to or how do you talk about what it is you do? Um, a little bit. I introduce myself as a licensed clinical mental health counselor associate, uh, Reiki master teacher, psychotherapeutic Reiki uh, practitioner. Um, I think that pretty much mother. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so um, and, and probably uh, entrepreneur as well. I think. Yes, that's, that's right. Probably. Yeah, talk about so insight owl. Talk about how's that going? What is tell us about that? Uh, so, Insight Owl Counseling and Wellness is my um, it is my therapy and psychotherapeutic Reiki practice. Um, I also have Return to Balance with Reiki, which is solely my Reiki practice uh, for those that I see that. And I also have a third um, business going on, which is called Reiki for Therapists, which is a specific curriculum that I build out to teach Reiki to other therapists so they too can practice psychotherapeutic Reiki. And I think it's, this is one of the things we're going to talk about today that the, in a way there needs to be three different entities because the Reiki and the clinical mental health counseling worlds don't yet evenly mesh with one another because of series of complex historical ethical questions and uh, different understandings of what evidence-based research means and things like that. So this is one of the topics that I wanted to talk about. Um, And I thought since you're in the thick of it these days, I'm just curious to hear. So if you're going to, if you're just getting a Reiki client, somebody who just wants to see you for Reiki, but has never done it before and asks for more information, how do you describe Reiki to that person? Hmm. To that particular person, the way that I like to describe it is, is that it is an energy-based uh, healing practice that sources from Japan. It's done uh, through kind of the laying on of hands. Um, and the, the goal is to reduce the stress in the body, not only through the channeling of universal life energy, but um, also through the magic of human touch. Um, and that um, it is a spiritually based practice as well. So um, essentially, I'll guide them through a, a brief guided relaxation sequence. Um, I place my hands on particular positions in their body. And then I, I once after the Reiki session is over, then we process a bit. Um, I kind of leave it up to the Reiki to explain itself. Um, I sometimes tell people, what to expect a little bit, that they should feel deeply relaxed, that they may experience visualizations. And afterwards, it kind of feels like getting a massage without ever having gotten a massage. Um, But I really let the Reiki stand alone when I am just speaking to a Reiki-seeking client. Right, because it's an experiential process that you could put words to, but then in a way, you're already framing the experience for them. And 
in my experience, whenever I have done any explaining after the session, when you say, Oh, well, what was that like to them? The whole like, Whoa. And then you start to see them process back through the physical experience. And that seems much more meaningful than any explanation that I had ever given. Um, and yeah, I mean, I describe it in the same way. And I think that especially here in Asheville, like there's, everybody says, that sounds great. Let's do that. Um, <laughs> Um, but I'm, but I'm curious then what changes in your description when say you're talking to a group of other licensed clinical mental health counselors who are not familiar with Reiki, how do you describe it to them? I tend to use a little bit more of a sciency approach. So what I like to do is I say, it's a bit like mindfulness on steroids, Um, I will make it really clear that it's a spiritual practice, just like mindfulness, just like therapeutic yoga. Um, So it's an Eastern-based spiritual practice that we have shown that has had positive impacts on mental health. Um, I also will tend to kind of bring in that it's been shown to to, uh, the research has supported that it is helpful in depression, that it is helpful in anxiety, and that there's ongoing research with PTSD. So I'll throw all the research kind of in there, right there at the front end. And then also thing that I'll say is, is that it helps engage their parasympathetic nervous system. So when it engages that parasympathetic nervous system, there's so much more insight and room for people to be able to process Um, I also tend to frame it as a somatic uh, and mindfulness guided activity. Um, And so I I bring in all of those pieces. Essentially, I use the language, right? We just the language. It's a code switch, right? It's a code switch because in, uh, oh, I don't know about your program. I'm guessing it must be very similar because you went through because of the accreditation process, but like we are constantly uh, citing and being asked to return to the American Counseling Association's ethics guidelines in order to um, sort of validate our approach to a certain case study or, or a certain question. And things like Reiki have not shown up in the texts that we read because they're not yet um, classified as vet, appropriately vetted through social science or medical research, um, at least in the text that, that I'm reading and the, the way that my teachers have done it. In fact, we had one textbook that said that it had been a discredited um, method. Uh, and so it would seem like, oh, well, then it's off the table. But no, because of the things that you're mentioning, which is there are three, at least three broad categories that now are widely accepted mindfulness, somatic approaches or somatic experiencing. And, um, what would the other one be? Well, I mean, I guess- uh, well, you know what? And it's interesting. EFT, the, ta- the tapping EFT, not the emotionally focused therapy EFT. Um, also, so there is a whole branch of energy psychology. Hmm. And yeah. so um, it's, tending, it's tending in the direction. 
It is indeed. It is indeed. The other thing that's interesting as well is in the code of ethics, all three codes of ethics, the um, American Psychological Association, the National Association of Social Workers, and the American Counseling Association Code of Ethics, all three of them actually have provisions in them. And I wish I, I actually had it pulled up right now, which ones it is. But all three of them, they talk about informed consent. Absolutely, right? Um, which is important for us to fully explain what Reiki is. Um, and there's been some interesting discussion about um, that in its use in hospitals. Um, but then the other piece as well is that there is some leeway for if you're going to use an approach that is not evidence-based, you just need to be competent in it. Right. right. So bounds of competency and do no harm. Right. And as we know, Reiki, there is not one single filed complaint of harm through Reiki. There's been ethical complaints against practitioners, but that's different, right? right. Right. The Reiki itself cannot or has thus far not been proven to cause any sort of harm. And so we're using a methodology that has been shown to only have benefits and not cause harm. And as long as we stay within our bounds of competence and we make sure that we use it in very appropriate situations, anxiety, depression, PTSD, uh, and also blending it with evidence-based practices like internal family systems. I love doing some parts work with Reiki, <laughs> you know, uh, blending it with um, emotionally focused individual therapy, doing that inner child healing yeah. while assisted and supported with Reiki, just magical stuff happens. You know, there is a deep transformation that can occur when we're being when we're working with a client to hold them in that way. Yeah. I, I mean, I totally agree for, based on my experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, the language issue is legitimate and it, we Reiki practitioners need to learn how to speak all these different languages. But I, I also do think that eventually it will be <clears throat> tested more and sort of included more because of the, the fact that it, it works on people because people, see that something happens and it happens quickly. Um, um, which I think probably goes back to the, the deceivingly important dimension of relaxation in the whole, um, in the whole like Reiki process. I mean, you know, as you well know, one description that floats around about Reiki is that it's a Japanese relaxation technique and people who hear that might see, might laugh at first and be like, well, that's sort of not saying much about what it is. But on the other hand, relaxation is like the key, like that whole, the, the, the calming, the regulation of the nervous system yes. is what allows in the language, right? Us to, to allows people to reenter their window of tolerance, the place where they can actually start processing um, stored trauma or any kind of difficult subject matter. And Reiki seems to drop people into this regulated space really quickly, way more quickly than talking um, uh, with somebody and just asking questions or answering questions. And I think because of that, people sense, clients sense how therapeutically beneficial it is. Um, but it is a completely different world. I mean, it is a, it is like a, it's a different approach to the whole concept of wellness um, that you're right. You have to be competent in, in order to. 
That was so beautifully put that, uh, that Reiki allows us to drop into our window of tolerance and a quick, it's like, it's quick, it's efficient and it's effective, right? It allows clients to drop into their window of tolerance. Because if you think about it, we only have, when we're in therapy, we only have this very brief period of time to basically be attempting to elicit change that is going to carry outside of the room. Right. right? So if people come in and they're totally, they're having a rough day or a what rough week and like they're not settled, then it, it could take a long period of time to get the person to sort of like breathe and calm down. But somatic approaches, including Ricky and other things get, get people there a lot quicker. Yes. Yes, absolutely. The other thing that's interesting about Reiki is because it is a spiritual practice and it, you know, speaking of incorporating things into the therapeutic relationship because it is a spiritual practice. And according to our code of ethics, we need to disclose it as such. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, for some people, it's not going to be a good fit. And then for other people, it is a profound relief to be able to connect on a spiritual level, to be able to connect to their higher selves, to be able to connect to whatever this larger consciousness is that is so often cut off and negated when we look at, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy. (laughs) You know what I mean? We just skip over this enormous part of the human experience. And it's interesting, like in internal family systems, they talk about self-energy. Right. Mm -hmm. And then they kind of like do the Reiki dance, right? They're like, you can call it soul. You can call it higher self. You can call it, you know, so, right. So they start doing the name game, but essentially we're talking about exactly the same thing. Yeah. This is where the profound shifts and healings always source from is from that higher, more transcendental energy. Yeah. And I would think that's another branch, right? Like the transpersonal psychology Mm -hmm. dimension, which forces uh it forces you know more black and white thinkers to to open up to things that are a little harder to explain because spirituality is by definition that sort of nebulous um a nebulous topic but i was i forget which class i was in but it's, it's well one of our one of my professors is specializes in transpersonal psychology and so i think it gets stressed because of this but how that for many years through the eighties and nineties and even the early two thousands, like, you know, counselors steered away from religion, um, in the, in the therapeutic setting, because it was often a, it was, and it clearly still is a, um, a very <laughs> difficult issue to bring up hard for therapists themselves, to sort of bracket off their own personal thoughts about it hard for the transference counter transference situation in the, in the room. Um, but then, you know, over the last decade or so, it's been clear that the spiritual component of a person's life can't be shut out of the the therapy room. And so bringing up, um, this particular spiritual tradition, I think you're right, is really helpful because it doesn't, um, there's no dogma. Yeah, exactly. There's no doubt. There's no, there's no, it's open enough that people can explore it. So I think that the big group that you tap into there are like the agnostic atheist group who are willing to say that there's something bigger that I don't understand or I don't know. And it's a great way to bring spirituality into the conversation. 
It's also really interesting though. I have found it to be incredibly transformative for some clients who have, let's, uh, for example, very, very um, conservative Christian kind of fundamentalist uh, belief systems. When you're able to integrate Reiki in, because it is a spiritual practice, if you as a practitioner are willing to go there, you can call in their own, you can call in Jesus. You can call in, you know, angels. You can call in whatever adheres to whatever their belief system is. Um, you know, for example, Catholics, you can call in saints that it feels, um, they feel seen, mm. right? In a way that traditional psychotherapy oftentimes skips over. And so it is, um, I found it to be, like I said, it's not for everybody. I have some talk therapy clients that all we're doing is talk. I have other clients where I blend in distance Reiki mm-hmm. while we're actually doing talk therapy, right? Yep. And it's really fascinating. I have the pillow on my lap. I'm doing telehealth, right? <laughs> yeah. I have the pillow on my lap, sending distance Reiki. And as we're going through the interventions, I can feel literally physically in my hands, feel the energy shift and change in their system. You know, that is, it's fascinating and it opens me up as the facilitator of the healing experience to um, a whole lot more information than I ever would have Mm. if I did not have that as a tool as well. Oh yes. The deep, the, you know, that's the affirming of the intuitive dimension to the therapeutic relationship is so important. Um, And actually that's one of those things I think that therapists going through training might get worked out of them a little bit because relying on your intuition could also, you know, because it could be like, you feel like you're imposing your own belief. Um, or at least I I can imagine how it would be slanted that way. And people would be sort of hesitant to tap into their own sense of what's going on because they don't want to infringe on the person's autonomy or whatever. But there is something to be said about what is this whole way of knowing that my body has and that my emotional self has, we can't close that out of the room just as we can't foreclose the spiritual dimension of the client's life. You can't shut your um, bodily knowledge, intuitive knowing sense out of the therapy room either. So Reiki provides a great way to strengthen that and to stay in touch with it. It's almost like a continuing education (laughs) credit that you do for yourself um, by developing that practice over time. You know, it's interesting that you, that you bring that up because um, you're absolutely right. Grad school, graduate school does, I think, um, an incredible disservice to therapists because you're right. It does strip away. It strips away and almost um, vilifies the in- intuition and the inner knowing. It's interesting, programs like Naropa do not do that. Right. Right? Because they're based in, in mindfulness and contemplation. And, and so there is a space in those very specialized programs. Um, but traditional graduate school does do that. And I remember um, clearly searching for a um, searching for a supervisor afterwards. And I ended up with the supervisor from Naropa <laughs> because oh. when I came in contact with other people, they, when I would talk about clinical intuition, it really was, it was almost as if I was um, 
not, uh, it's like I was saying dirty words. It wasn't an appropriate thing for me to be using, you know? And I think it's a shame that we strip away this tremendous gift that most mental health practitioners and healers have. Yeah. I think about my theater training a lot doing this because the, I mean, I'm doing this online my this graduate program online so we don't have the um the embodied togetherness that like you would in a in-person um set in an in-person setting and with mock clients and things you're doing a lot so much telehealth might feel like you're not in person but all of my theater experience really puts me in the in a frame of mind where i feel like i'm with that person in in a certain space and that is so powerful the very first thing that I notice and that I continue to notice in every class that I take is that the, the social science approach to the, the, the science of counseling um, analyzes things in such a way that it ends up abstracting the counselor's mind from the counselor's body. Um, you know, it's the classic, like, um, like, Oh, well, the, um, like the empathetic listening and the non-judgmental listening cycle introduced early on is like a technique. And you're like, oh, that sounds great. And they're like, well, hold on, it has four parts. And then each part has some <laughs> subparts. So that what's, what happens is for students who are younger, especially, I think, they, they find this and they then when they're practicing it, what they're doing is in their head, they're picturing the stages of the thing and they're trying to check the the box of doing the stage of the thing, which is not the same as listening empathetically in the moment with the person and people then get pulled out of themselves so that intuition isn't even, it's not even turned on because people are, are thinking their way through the practice. And well, that's, and it's, that's too bad. It, it's interesting. You know, when we were talking about language before, I agree with you fully. And I think when we, instead of saying intuition in the therapeutic world, if we said the word felt sense, then it would be, quote, it, it's the same thing, right? Yeah. But we can get away with saying I had a felt sense. And then that would, that would somehow make that sense appropriate. Mm-hmm. The other thing, as you were talking about that, kind of the checking of the boxes, the thing that always comes up for me is they've done tremendous amount of studies about the effectiveness of different theoretical orientations and different techniques. And every single time they come back to the therapeutic alliance is the number one change factor. Your felt sense, your presence in the room and your ability to be energetically connected to another. Right. Yeah. And, and what is the, the one of the key words there is, congruence right like the the therapist's own congruence meaning how balanced in mind body and spirit a, the therapist is with him her or their self um and so if you are in any way like turning off part of yourself in order to comply with a perceived set of rules then you're not actually congruent or authentically there and present in the space because you're turning part of this off so for therapists who have been um, called to like sort of explore different spiritual dimensions, I think it's, it's it's ethically important that they follow that calling and figure out what the language is that best suits them. And for many people, I think Reiki is a great language. 
um, for all the reasons that we've mentioned. Uh, I love that. I love that. Yeah. Uh, I often, when I first started practicing and I was only doing talk therapy and I had not incorporated in the psychotherapeutic Reiki yet, that was always my long-term goal, but I hadn't done it yet. And, um, and it was some ways I'm grateful because it gave me a good solid two years to work on my clinical skills, right. Before adding anything in, but the whole time I felt like I had my arm tied behind my back. You know, I was only partway there. My whole self has had not fully manifested in a congruent way in the therapeutic space. And there's been a dramatic change in my work with my clients since I have done that. Mm. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, I think that you, yeah, you really touched on something there. Yeah. I think, I mean, the, to me, the great insight since the 1950s is that therapy counseling, mental health counseling is, is an art. Unfortunately, in order to validate it against other more say medicalized traditional types of psychology and psychiatry, it has to play the game of showing that it's a science. Mm -hmm. And so it ends up getting caught between science and artistic expression but that there's so much to benefit the field and clients by really figuring out what is that artist, artistic side, not in the conventional sense of, well, there are X kind, there are X amounts of artists, you're either a painter or a musician, not that kind of art, but artist in the grand sense of really trying to like surf the complexity of the world um, in a meaningful way. Um, whereas I would say the goal of science is to limit chaos in the world um, by revealing places where there are order, there is order. And on the two sides of the continuum, I definitely am way on the, uh, on the artistic side. And I, and I really hope that mounting evidence and people like you who are doing Reiki and bringing into the psychotherapy room help to help to bring up that side of the continuum into the conversation. Cause it's really needed. You know, it's interesting. The tagline of my uh, Reiki for Therapist co- course is blending the art of healing with the science of psychotherapy mm-hmm. for exactly that reason. Yep. Um, the other piece, uh, you know, the research piece, there's the center of Reiki research that is working hard uh, to continue to gather research around it um, in I also came across a woman who had done her uh, national, you know, her social work degree, and she had written uh, her thesis on psychotherapeutic Reiki. Mm. And it is really fascinating um, how many uh, it is growing, right? Um, of course, funding is required. Um, And also large sample size is required, Uh, consistency, all the pieces that make um, all the, all the pieces that make a good research study. So it actually stands up to scrutiny, you know, Um, it is happening very slowly. (laughs) That's one of the reasons why I want to train more therapists in Reiki because we need a base to actually do the research with. Right. (laughs) I I think if, you know, if, if psychedelic, if psychedelic 
um, therapeutic means, you know, is really moving ahead. I think that that's a good, that's a good sign that if, if that is, that comes before Reiki somehow, it seems like, it seems like, well, after that, <laughs> there should be a lot of leeway for, um, for, you know, Reiki psychotherapy and Reiki. So I think you're right. I think, I think the next 10 years, we'll see a, a huge amount of, of change in the, in the profession. And, and I, that's only going to benefit clients. Cause I think it's only going to open the door um, make more points of access to therapy for people who might've felt like it just wasn't for them or, you know, or it's like supremely white, like just a white sort of like always a very white talky place and trying to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, so that people from all different backgrounds and cultures feel like they can go and explore their whole selves. That would be uh, amazing. Uh, so if people want to, um, look you up. What's the best way to do that? Um, probably my website. There's www.insight-owl.com. And uh, yeah, that's where I'm at. And are you offering, um, are you doing these classes online for people everywhere or are you seeing people locally? Um, right now I'm doing locally. I have big plans for the future actually to travel around. I have found that um, in line uh, or in-person Reiki training, there's just some magic there. Yeah. There's some sort of magic there that really happens. Um, yeah. The Reiki for therapist classes. It's interesting. You mentioned congruence before um, that first level is really focused on self uh, self-care and bringing yourself into congruence and then Reiki two, And then of course the Reiki master teacher level is about, um, really developing the skills to implement psychotherapeutic Reiki in an ethical way. Right. Oh yes. I mean, I hope people look you up and, <clears throat> and, uh, take classes with you. And, um, I'm so glad that we could talk about it today. Yeah, me too. Me too. Thanks for having me.